Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we share with you the business stories, ideas, and trends shaping the future of customer experience, told firsthand by the experts themselves in thought-provoking conversations. In this episode, we curated 13 clips from past episodes of the Human Insight Podcast to give you insights on being a better product leader. You'll hear from C. Todd Lombardo, author of several books, including Product Roadmaps Relaunched, Silicon Valley Product Group's Christian Iriotti, Product School's Carlos Gonzalez de Villambrosia, Harvard Business School's Julia B. Austin, Radhika Dutt, author of Radical Product Thinking, Teresa Torres, author of Continuous Discovery Habits, Ignition's Karthik Shares, and Idios Ian Roberts. In this first clip, user testing CEO Andy McMillan asks C. Todd Lombardo how he sees the role of a product leader in the future. When you think about this evolving area of product management, I mean, even, you know, we talk about the specific challenge of the pandemic, but just broadly, when you think about what it's like to be a product leader these days, what do you think is the future of like the role of product management, how product management works together with, with design and research and things like that? Like, how do you see the role evolving? It's interesting because I was just I was just in the middle of putting together like the history of product management in my own head to just to share with my my team and like going all the way back to like what's his name McElroy and that sort of like the brand man memo back in the nineteen I think thirties ish and, and part of it is I don't think it's actually changing too much in that still the biggest thing is how do you deliver value to a customer and a business at the same time. Uh, and as a product manager, there's a lot of different functions that you have to help align to be able to deliver value to both of those parties um, at a minimum. And uh, you're the glue, right? You're kind of like gluing all this together saying, hey, there is this product. We're trying to deliver it to, to market to offer some, solve some problem for a customer, but also do it in a way that's going to make us some money. <clears throat> because we need to stay uh, stay profitable to be survive as a business. Otherwise, we won't be able to afford to hire employees, et cetera. I don't think that is going to change much. The evolution is going to be how we do it and how we do it in, in <laughs> product is already uncertain. And we've got this other layer of pandemic and hybrid or, you know, I don't think it's actually the dust has not settled as to what work culture is going to be like in the future. So there's just a couple other layers of uncertainty on top of it which I think we need to take into account of what does that look like and how do we manage that as a team? How do we still pull our teams together in the right way? How do we support them and give them the right tools? I think those are the things that are going to change, but we're just dealing with a, a, a higher level of uncertainty right now more than anything else. In this clip, Andy asked Christian Idioti about his thoughts about the evolution of a product leader. I, uh, I came up through my career in the product management world, that was sort of my journey into into technology as well. Sort of similar to yours in that when I get asked like, "How do you become a product manager?" I always tell them everybody's story is entirely different, and none of them start off with "I wanted to be a product manager." It's like you, you know your point. Like you don't go to school and get a degree in it. Right. Uh, I always tell folks if if you like being responsible for everything but in charge of nobody, this is the job for you. Right. It's <laughs> it's sort of this really challenging sort of dynamic, yeah. uh, but it's also an, it's a it isn't uh, a role. Uh, in some ways, a, a sort of industry, if you will, or, or a, a career trajectory that has really changed a lot. Um, from when I started, I mean, it was sort of very waterfall, very different. It's very different now. Um, how do you think about the sort of evolution of the product leader role 
over the course of your career. I mean, it's, it's a pretty interesting space just in terms of change. That's right. That's right. It's very different from the evolution of dance approaches. My kids and I are watching that. Like, so it's, it's absolutely, look, I've seen product go from an unneeded discipline to an undefined one, to a necessary evil in some places, to poorly leveraged and unaccountable in companies, to now you see companies that just define themselves as we are a product company. I mean, it's spectacular to even see take native companies like, like Google or Instacart invest in um, APM programs to train and equip product managers. You see uh, colleges and universities scrambling to create curriculum and programs to teach the discipline. Um, you will see banks, like I am working with like big banks, insurance companies, oil and gas companies. You know, you see like executives pitching shareholders that we want to become a product company, you know. Um, and this discipline is growing, was it like 40% year over year? It's now the number one career path to startup CEO or co-founder in, in, or founder in Silicon Valley. Graduates desire it now, um, modern investment banks. Uh, it is almost a new book coming out every day on this thing. And um, so it is changing. Uh, um, it's it's scary how quickly it's changing. Um, it comes with its own nuanced challenges because what's clear about its evolution is that there's tremendous demand. Um, many companies have come to realize that the ways we've created value in the past will not meet the challenges of the future. Uh, they've come to realize that the pace of innovation is changing and that um, there are significant opportunities to truly look at a discipline that cares really about the choices we make and how we do things um, and, and uh, maybe accelerated by the likes of Amazon or, or Google in the world and uh, unicorns popping up every day and all of them not looking like companies that looked the way they did before. Um, so so I, I think in several ways, uh, the evolution is accelerating. It, it is far from a, a very well-defined discipline. Like we will love it. Uh, I, I don't think I've met any two companies with the same definition of what uh, or expectation of what this discipline should be. Um, I, I I think we've we've tried very hard as an organization to be clear about what good looks like at least. <laughs> um, but that evolution is still an ongoing thing. Um, I do sense that the day we figure it out, there'll be something better <laughs> that we need to go after again. Uh, but I, I know that there's demand that it's disruptive in many companies uh, and it's yet to, to, to live on for at least the next decades or two. In this clip, user testing chief insights officer, Janelle Estes asks Carlo Gonzalez de Villambrosia, what are the two or three skills needed for a product manager to be successful. We kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd, I'd love if you could pinpoint, I don't know, two or three skills that product managers need to be successful. When we created the school, the type of uh, users that were interested in breaking into product were very specific. And now we have much more diversity. Like back in the day, it was mostly software engineers who didn't want to code. Now that's not the case at all. Like we see everything, including engineers, of course. So. The role of the technical skills is playing less relevance than before. What I mean by that is that, yes, you can still see to these days some companies saying in the job description, well, you need to know how to code. But the reality is that that with the evolution of the no-code tools, 
And now the creators have much more power to build, to connect with their users without knowing how to code. So I would say number one is to really feel comfortable creating and doing whatever it takes to ship something. And if that's with code, fantastic. If that's without code, that's great as well. But like not losing momentum and make sure that you can connect with your customer and, and, and build something for them, even if it's not perfect. The second one is, and, and this kind of stays constant, is the communication skills. Because if you're not the ultimate doer of anything, you need to work with people to create, to build great things. You need to feel comfortable communicating with them. And this is even more important now in a world where a lot of us are working from home. Because I remember um, not so long ago, people saying, well, the product managers need to be in the engineering room. There's no way we can work separately. Well, I think the market has proven that there are incredible organizations that work remotely and they can, they can make it happen. So I think feeling comfortable communicating however, however it is, via Zoom, via Slack, via email, via voice, via in-person, whatever that might be, but like not forgetting that you're working with you humans at the end of the day, regardless of the technology that those humans leverage. And those for me are absolutely necessary. And if I may add a third one, which is kind of rising, when I started product school, not too many people would talk about user research, to be honest. Now it's really, really hot. Like we realize that, yes, while well, some companies may have user research teams, which is great, we can't wait for that. The user, the product manager has to feel empowered to conduct their own research, to get data, both qualitative and quantitative. And this is different than being a, a designer or being a developer or being a marketer. It's, it's, being, it's wearing the user research hat. And that's something that it's very necessary these days as we think about iterating our product instead of creating a master plan and then shipping them and hoping for the best. Here, Andy asks Julie Austin about the characteristics of a great product manager. I think it's absolutely incredible. Uh, just the idea that there's folks uh, in and around Harvard Business School talking about product management and best practices and how to do this. Uh, it's such a long uh, way from where we were when I started. I started in product management maybe 20 years ago. It's been a long time. And we used to talk about how no two product managers used to come to the job from the same path. You know, it was sort of this thing people found their way into from all parts of the company, you know, different backgrounds, um, you know, kind of different perspectives. Um, so it's, it's exciting to hear kind of formalizing to some extent. But um, from your perspective, both as somebody who's been a product manager and a product leader and as an educator, like, what do you what do you think makes a great product manager? Like when you meet somebody, you're like, oh, they're going to be a you know a great yeah, product person. Yeah. Uh, what characteristics do you think those are? Yeah, there's sort of three fundamental characteristics that I really believe in. Um, they they definitely have to have a strong uh, domain understanding. They don't have to be an expert, but really have the aptitude to understand a domain and get up to speed and really familiar with the customer and, and really be the voice of the customer and be comfortable with being in the customer's shoes. I think that's an important skill. Uh, they have to have a great EQ, uh, not only to interact with customers, but their ability to build relationships across an organization, whether it's an early stage organization or more mature, uh, from designers and engineers to product leaders, strategists, uh, higher level, uh, down to all support folks, right? Really being able to navigate an organization, understanding everybody has a different view of the customer and the product and being comfortable uh, context switching a lot between all of those. And then I think the last piece is uh, being comfortable with the organization's mission and having it be a good fit for them. So what I've seen is great product managers landing in a company that's really not a great fit for them. Maybe it's too early stage or too big. Uh, 
uh, where they're gone, they've gone too narrow and they need to do something with more breadth. So being comfortable in the particular organization is as important as their skills. I, I do think the personal piece and that ability to context switch and, and be engaging with lots of different audiences is critical. In this clip, Janelle asked Carlos about what makes up a great product team. Aside from an individual product manager, what do you think makes a great product team? Love that because the product team is made up of a lot of different people, not just product managers. I think of the product team, well, ideally the product team should be the company. Like I believe everyone is in product, including the CEO. But let's go back to at least a more tangible definition of the product team. For me, it includes engineering, it includes design, and of course, product management. That is absolutely critical. And of course, this product team is going to collaborate with with marketing, sales, finance, legal, and, and other departments. But I think of product as a connection between multiple teams here. What makes a, what makes one of those teams high-performing, and, and I've been lucky enough to be in a situation where I can really see uh, really incredible product organizations thrive. It's really, first is um, two things. One is alignment and innovation. And it's kind of a trade-off constant because if you focus too much on like just going for it, and you forget about alignment with the team, you can end up with a Frankenstein type of product. That yes, you shipped a lot of features very fast, but the reality is that you don't have enough time or data to validate that those features are right. At the same time, if you spend too much time with alignment, just having meetings and making sure that everything is pixel perfect and all the templates are, and everyone's speaking the same language, they're probably going to lose some velocity and that might be critical in your go-to-market. So high-performing teams are able to balance both they're able to make hard decisions sometimes, which means maybe we're shipping less and we're focusing more on technical debt, on making sure that everyone understands the vision for the product and really have a more clear strategy. And there are other times where it's time to go. So I, I think that it's a lot of, um, it's a little bit of an art and a science at the end of the day, because yes, there are a lot of frameworks and, and tools and they all help the PMs, but there's also some experience that you can only acquire when you are in the trenches and you have to, you know, like the worst thing that can happen is that you just go with the flow. There are so many products out there that have too many features and shutting down a feature is a really hard decision. And a lot of people don't make it because of fear. And I, I don't blame them. It's a scary decision, but you are a product leader for a reason. And you have to make the hard decisions in terms, in terms of features, in terms of team members. Like you, only, you can only go as fast as the slowest member of your team. Here, Janelle is asking Redhika Dutt about the three pillars of radical product thinking. My understanding is that there's three pillars of radical product thinking. I was wondering if you could just kind of boil those down for us. Um, what are those three pillars? So the first pillar is that your product is your constantly improving mechanism for creating the change you envision in the world. It's a fundamentally new definition of product, right? Because we've always thought about product as hardware, software, a thing basically. And we've thought about this thing as the end goal in itself. But really the the first thing is we need to rethink our product altogether where our product is not the end goal, it's our mechanism for creating change. And when we start thinking about product in this way, 
anything becomes a product. We're all product managers in this world, right? So for example, whether you're a freelance uh, designer, uh, you're a researcher, um, you're working in a high-tech company, you're creating a government policy, all of these uh, are roles in which you're creating change, so you have to envision change and you're building a product to create that change. So that's the first pillar. The second is, you know, if your product is a mechanism for creating change, then before you start building your product, you have to have a clear vision for what's the change you want to bring. Because your product is going to be meaningless unless you first thought about what is that change and then you can build your product. And the third pillar is that you can engineer that change very systematically. It's not just about trying things and seeing what sticks. It's really about envisioning that change and very systematically uh, translating that into reality. And all of these product diseases that I just mentioned earlier, you know, those are diseases that creep in whenever there's a break in the chain from translating your vision into strategy, into priorities and execution. Whenever you have a break, that's where these product diseases crop up. And so we can engineer the change we want very systematically and avoid product diseases by taking this approach. Great. Yeah, I, I, I think those three pillars really, really resonate with, with me personally. And I, I know a lot of our listeners are going to find value in hearing you break it down that way. In this clip, Janelle asks Teresa Torres about what is continuous discovery. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is continuous discovery? Yeah, so I'll start with just discovery. Discovery really just represents the work we're doing to decide what to build right? We often contrast this with delivery, which is the work we're doing to ship a, pr a production quality product. A lot of us, when we were introduced to discovery tactics, we were introduced to them from a project mindset. And that's because as an industry, we're really steeped in the project world still, even though we're trying to get more continuous. It's easy to see what continuous looks like on the delivery side, right? Like we can think back 20 years when we were putting software on CDs, shipping them in boxes, selling them on store shelves. And that was like, we would release every year or two. We've moved to a much more continuous delivery cycle. We see companies delivering every quarter, every month. The Amazons and Netflix of the world are delivering multiple times a day. Like that shift to continuous is really easy to see. On the discovery side, it's a little bit harder to see because decision-making, like aren't we always making decisions every day? That already is continuous. But what's not continuous is we forget to get customer feedback continuously through that process so that we're always um, informing those decisions and making sure that we're making good decisions. So continuous discovery is really, for me, it's looking at how do we take a structured approach to this really messy process of understanding our customers and making sure we're making decisions that are going to work for them. In this clip from episode 36, Andy asks Ian Roberts why getting customer feedback is critically important a bit on how leaders are conditioned to believe this is expensive and hard and, and maybe valuable, but, but, you know, is it achievable? Is it doable? I mean, one of the quotes from the book that I have in my notes here that, that we have is, you know, some key decision makers have been conditioned to believe that numbers are all they need to make sound business decisions. Mm -hmm. And many of them don't realize what they're missing, even though only 23% of initiatives driven by big data alone turn a profit. Few leaders are making the connection. They don't realize yet that seeing the world through their customers' eyes is an ability mm -hmm. they need to drive real growth. How, how do you convince or convey to folks that this is 
important. I mean, so many folks go through business school, they maybe come up through the maybe finance side of the house or run a PL and like they live and die in dashboards and spreadsheets. And how do we how do we convince people that their customers aren't dashboards and spreadsheets? Like what do we all have to do to make that happen? I mean, so many feelings right now to in, in, in a way to respond to that question. But um first is you can't design the future in an Excel spreadsheet. Right? Period. All that an Excel spreadsheet defines for you is the data that you've accrued on how things have worked in the past. Right. So let's like get like in that frame of mind of understanding if you want to be competitive in the future, you want to figure out what to do. The past doesn't predict how that plays out. And now we're living in a moment where I don't know the specific um, stats. I don't have them at my fingertips, but more companies are aging out of the Fortune 500 at a faster rate than they ever have done before because their business models are reaching the end of their maturity. Right. And fundamentally, they're not finding ways to pivot into new business models fundamentally that are based on new understandings of how they can serve their customers, right? Yep. And I think that is the thing we need to situate with leaders is you're looking to build a future fit organization, right? You're definitely facing the end in some way, shape or form of the runway of your business model. And the only place, I mean, if you believe Drucker, that the, 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 um, the, the purpose of a business is to, is to make and retain a customer, it's fundamentally to ask that question, like what is the role of your brand in the lives of your customers? That's the only question that you can start with. And it's not, I think we have to change the perception that um, research is something that's done at the end of a process when we've defined all of the conditions and constraints and we're trying to understand, is this design good or bad? I firmly believe that research has a role to play throughout the life cycle of any organization and that is actually one of the most strategic levers that the, the senior executive can use to understand, like, where do I want to play in the future? In this clip from episode 47, Janelle asks Sheresh Karthik about what is needed for a successful product launch. Uh, so it sounds like there's certainly considerations for um, the size of the business, the business model itself. Um, but you did just mention that there's sort of common elements that are important when, in any sort of go-to-market plan, regardless of size or, or business model. So can you talk a little bit about that? What are some of the key elements in a go-to-market plan? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, so when you so when you first think about launch planning or a go-to-market plan, the very first thing you want to do is like, hey, what are my objectives? You know, what are the KPIs for the launch? You know, we talked about, you know, is, is your objective to, you know, are you creating a new category or are you entering a competitive market? Um, and then what are your KPIs? So very clearly defining objectives and KPIs for the launch. What what constitutes success? That's kind of where you begin with. Then you then you go into the target audience. Like basically in target audience, the first thing you need to do is think about who is your ideal customer profile. That's basically defining the kind of companies you're going to go after. You know, talking more from an enterprise um, you know, client's perspective, uh, and then the buyer persona. Is it like a PM? Is it a PMM? Like, what is the buyer persona within those companies? So, and then defining that uh, persona uh, is pretty critical. And then, you know, a lot of the times, there's a lot of confusion uh, in the go-to-market side of things is because uh, the, the different members of the sales team, they're not very clear as to like who they are actually like going after and pitching to, especially when there's a new product or feature. Um, so clearly defining the persona is important. The next step is like thinking of Andy. So you had a question. No, no, I was I was just gonna um, jump in and ask. I, I feel like 
um, defining personas is, is really important. We heard one of the contributors in the videos just sort of reminded me um, towards the end, talked about uh, alignment with the actual need of the product. And so I think we sort of started with some of the videos saying, you know, it wasn't aligned with support or I wasn't aligned with marketing. Um, but towards the end, someone said, you know, sometimes these product launches just aren't connected with what the ultimate need actually was of the user. Um, you know, there are things that you've seen products teams do to to think about that and that need being maybe the product defined broadly, not just the the widget that's being built, but the you know the service, the marketing, everything around it. Um, I, I just thought that was an interesting observation when you talked about the buyer persona. It sort of to me sort of reconnected in my head that comment from the video. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's so critical that you uh, you really understand the buyer persona and the pain points, because only when you do that, then the next step of the go-to-market plan is like trying to figure out the messaging. Like, how do you message it to the users so that they understand the value problem? It's like, okay, you you build this cool feature. So, so what? Like, well, how does it solve my problem? Like, and how is it different from the solution I am using it? And that's where positioning comes into play. Like, how are you positioning your product? You know, it's not just this new Coke, which just like, you know, one of the famous products which failed. <laughs> um, you know, really thinking about like, <clears throat> how exactly are you positioning your product? Are you doing like a price-based positioning? Are you being like a value-based positioning? Um, like really thinking about what's the message and how you're going to help differentiate your product from the, the rest of the competitors and that's going to be critical so that's the next part of the go-to-market plan so once you're done with uh, the messaging and positioning then you need to think about what channels you're going to use to reach those persona right so what channels you're going to use and obviously you know it shouldn't just be like one channel hopefully you have multiple channels in mind a combination of like emails and digital marketing and ads and SEO. So what kind of channels, what is the channel mix well, you're going to use to actually reach the customer? Um, then then once you decide on the channels, then you need to work with uh, the marketing ops team and designers to actually come, coming up, come up with marketing collateral, um, you know, copies and assets and generate all of that. Then you need to, and then depending on the type of the company, you train. You need to train your salespeople. So generate sales enablement material. You need to generate. You need to train your customer support, customer success people. So you need to have like webinars to train all of them, and you need to have a lot of material to actually train them about the feature which is going to be launched. Um, and then finally, you have a launch day where you have your whole launch day checklist where you basically run a checklist to make sure the engineering is ready, the marketing is ready, the sales is ready, the execs have signed off on the messaging. They make sure that, and then the legal and privacy and other folks in the company have also been kind of signed off on the messaging and the launch as a whole. Um, so there's a whole launch date checklist you need to put together. Uh, and then finally, there's the stakeholder management we talked about, you know, make, making sure you message the same same thing at various levels to the execs, to the salespeople, to your customers, you know, to, to engineering team, to marketing team. Just make sure everyone's on the same page before you hit the go live button on your launch, right? So all of this actually is is, is, is basically like a go-to-market plan. So it's basically requires significant investment upfront, um, which uh, you know a lot of the comp- a lot of companies miss. And people who do it right are the ones which really succeed. Back in their conversation in episode forty, Andy asked C. Todd about how to involve others in the process. As an example, C. Todd talks about how to involve the executives in a design sprint. Yeah, one of the things we've been uh, talking about, it's been a bit of a theme on the on the podcast is this idea of, you know, it's gotten easier 
to collect this kind of feedback. And we've been talking about that. Like, you know, people are tech enabled, you go get this stuff. How do you think about synthesizing that feedback? I mean, we're talking about how do you bring the engineering team along, but as you go up into into more senior leadership, as you're trying to get buy-in with the marketing team or the CEO or the, you know, the sales team in a B2B context of, of decisions, um, what do you have any thoughts on how to kind of share these insights or ways that you mm. to kind of align the company around what customers are saying? Because that's also, you know, part of the challenges yeah. as a product manager is like, you, you don't just have to get the engineering team going. You kind of got to get everybody going the same direction. <laughs> yeah, we have, I think one of the, one of the rules in product research school is like insights are best shared and sort of the, the subtle, the subtext rule is never write a report, right? You don't want to just write this big, long report and just send it around and say, here, go read this. Cause one, they're really ever read. But part of it is how do you make, how do you bring people along for the ride? How do you bring them along in the journey in some way? Can you involve them before even just the insights are generated? Right. So, and, I, and I'm still, I'll take the example of a design sprint uh, because it sort of nicely encapsulates to some degree. How do you involve an executive in design sprint? That, that was a question I got, hurt, uh, got asked a lot after I wrote that book. It's like, well, first include them and in, in just like the first half hour of the first day of when you're doing your assumption storming and, and trying to understand the problem you're solving, getting that context. I was like, you only need them there for the first part so that they have the opportunity to co-create with you and, and shape the problem you're trying to solve. Then bring them in again at the end of the third day when you've gotten your sketches ready and you before you start prototyping, like, hey, these are the solutions we think we're going to try and build and prototype and test. And then bring them in again at the end of the last day and say, hey, look, we tested this and these are some of the videos from our conversations. These are some of the things we learned, right? So you've brought them along the way and it's not like they just showed up at the end and said, you know, here's what we got. They've actually have more visibility into the whole journey. So I think that's that's the hard part sometimes is obviously all leaders and executives are busy, but how do you find the way to, to include them, right? It's that ask, at, the ask of being co-creative to some degree, and can you get their input along the way and bring them along that journey? That's probably the best, most effective. It's hard. It's, a lot, it's not as easy, but that's probably the best way I've seen teams do that. I really like that. I, I um. I talk about this concept of participatory leadership, which is sort of enabling leaders with the opportunity to participate along the way, because it's really hard as a senior leader at the end of a process to be given sort of a binary choice of approve or don't approve this thing. It's like, well, the, you know, the team's been working on it and, and, you know, it's, it disapprove is a hard, like, no, we're not doing this, but you know, you sort of get stuck with like, well, this is, you know, it's a binary choice. And I think if you have a chance as a leader and I really liked the way you laid that out. Like in the very beginning is we're setting up the assumptions and what we're going to go do. It's at one or two critical points along the way. And then in the end product, you sort of get buy-in along the way. And I think that's, uh, I think that's really good guidance. Yeah. I think the other thing is also when you're presenting things too, if you're presenting somebody who's coming in at the end, don't, don't start with the beginning, right? Tell them like, we've actually start with your conclusions first. Like here's where we ended. And then let me tell you how we got here, right? Because what you don't want to do is bring them on this journey, like in a presentation and they come to a different conclusion then you could like, okay, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. 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 And then they're like, wait, how did you get that conclusion from that start? Right. You don't want to do that, but start out with that conclusion first. And like, let me tell you how we got here and why. And that starts to paint a better, uh, a better way to, if you're just doing a presentation, um, for maybe, you know, a secondary or tertiary stakeholder, sometimes that's super useful. So how do you know when you're done here? Janelle asked Julie Austin, how to know when you have a good product fit. You know, in, in addition to product management, you've also got a very rich background in entrepreneurship, business strategy. You led innovation at places like VMware and Akamai, and you're advising uh, countless startups, uh, including Human First and We the People. So I'll ask you the age-old question, 
that everyone sort of wonders. How do you know when you have achieved product market fit? Oh, yeah, such a hard question. So I, I believe product market fit means you're building something that is having a repeatable user experience outcome. Right. And so, and you're seeing some amount of exponential growth. So it's happening over and over again. Uh, your customers almost feel like they can't live without it. Like if you were to suggest we're, we're shutting down, we're not going to be a company anymore, uh, or your product's no longer going to be available, they'd pay almost anything for you to keep it going for them and with a reasonable size TAM, right? So there's enough people using it and you're seeing that exponential growth. So it often is simpler than most people think. I think PMF for some uh, organizations or some product leaders is this belief it has to be multifaceted, tons of features and capabilities. And when you look at some of the great companies out there that got started, where they got PMF, we'll use OTP, we the people as an example, one of my uh, companies that I've invested in and advise, uh, they, they had a grand vision for uh, women's body care but they started with a razor and that's all it was, was the razor. And they just made the razor beautiful and appropriate for women's use. And were highly tailored around what we cared about as women. And that was their anchor point. And they just did that excellently and then built something around that. And I do see whether it's digital or physical product, that miss of what PMF really is. It's not lots of customers paying for lots of customizations or different features. It's one thing that you can do over and over again and do it well to the point that everyone feels like you're, you're foundational for me, whether it's personal or for my business. We'll end the episode with clips from C. Todd and Christian, each giving their take on the future of product. Um, when you think about the future of product, future of experience, what, what are you most excited about? I think. I think uh, I'll just say it. NFTs. Just kidding. <laughs> I wanted to see the looks on your faces. <laughs> um, Wait, now you're supposed to say metaverse. Right, right, right. Metaverse and the NFTs. No, um, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is that you know, technology is never going to slow down. And even just as I, as I mentioned earlier, is that the product, the, the basics of product isn't really going to change. So that the foundation and fundamentals will still always be there. But I, I'm really excited about how, especially in today's world, the, the speed at which data and technology and communications can happen and what we can do with that uh, to make everyone's lives better as, as we have more like, yes, metaverse, but how do we cross the, the digital and physical divide better? And I think that this past couple of years, the silver lining is we can still have a lot of human connections, even though there's there's not necessarily face-to-face human. There's a lot of stuff there that we we can still do as a, as a society. And that's what I think I'm really excited about. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the future. So uh, when you think about the future of product, I mean, you've talked about the evolution of the product world it feels in some sense, in some senses, and in some ways that we're kind of just getting started. So the future of product, like, what do you think about that? And, and like, what are you most excited about? Oh, man. I feel like I am living out all of my childhood sci-fi movies. You know, like all of the things that uh, we all thought were like a hundred years away, you know, like you watch those little movies. I mean, we're talking self-driving cars, 
people wanting to go to Mars. Like, seriously, we're seeing pictures and hearing sound from Mars, you know, the rise of the machines and AI, the role of technology becoming ubiquitous. I mean, these are like Jetson movies in front of us. You know, I mean, we we would have argued, I think, as kids, like, when if I had asked you the quiz, when do you think? Like, ah, 2150. I mean, all the movies even had, like, timelines like that, you know, in the distant future. And these are things that we are getting to experience, you know, all around the world. You know, uh, I'm like in communities in Africa with the balloon internet, with over 90% cell phone uh, penetration, a connected world, uh, a range of possibilities. Uh, the cycle time for innovation is getting shorter and shorter, right? Like it's, it, so, you know, I am most excited about the role of technology in our lives and uh, the, our ability to leverage it in more meaningful ways than ever before to solve problems. This is uh, probably the most exciting thing. I, I you know, part of my callback uh, in this realization is, you know, I, 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 when I travel to South America or to Africa, I used to have this false assumption that, yeah, we have it in America, so it must be everywhere. And then, you know, you go back to communities and you're just like, whoa, people still find jobs in the newspaper. You know, I was like, oh, I, I solved that problem in like 2001. You know, like, is it still a real thing here? You know, um, I, and you start to really get excited about the role of technology in, in every part of the world and all of the things it could do. So it is probably uh, um, the most exciting thing about product is that we, we will never run out of new companies trying to solve old problems in new ways. <laughs> um, this, it, is, it is that career security of, you know, there are always problems. Actually, most problems are not even new, but technology is evolving so quickly and fast now that, boy, I, I can't wait to see, you know, why are we driving? You know, we can just teleport. Why not? You know, I mean, those are the kinds of things that are like, uh, just make the walk of products super exciting. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please share it with a friend or coworker. If you think it could have been better, let us know. Email us at podcast at usertesting.com. Thanks.